0: Welcome to the Love Fly Podcast. It's Paul Tizard, Fear of Flying Coach for over 25 years. And today we're joined by Adam Spink from the Air Traffic Control Operation at Heathrow Airport, and also Hannah Davis, who you may remember did one of our previous podcasts talking about her own Fear of Flying story. And Hannah is here because I thought she would have lots of great questions from your perspective as a nervous flyer. Plus,. We have a ton of questions that we've been given that we posted in our Facebook group. So we're going to make sure we get through all of those today. So welcome, Adam.
1: Well, my name's Edwin Spink. I am a tower controller at uh, Heathrow Airport. So I work in the in the t- control tower uh, right in the middle of Heathrow Airport. I have been at Heathrow now for, oh gosh, oh, is it 23 years? Yeah, that's a long time. So I've uh, seen lots of changes. And, and yeah, so, so most, while I still work in the tower and talk to airplanes, which is mainly, I guess, what we're going to talk about today, which I'm more than happy to share my experiences and and maybe help some of your listeners to to demystify what goes on in the background. I also work in our operations department. So I'm half operational, half office based. Um, So I attend lots of meetings with airlines and airport representatives and work on new bits of equipment for our controllers and and new new ATC procedures.
0: Thank you. That's great. So the reason Hannah's here is because Hannah's been through uh, one of our 30 day programmes and aside from helping with the instagram and making it actually come alive i thought that she would have some great questions to ask uh, on top of the loads that we've already got hmm. so uh, i'm not sure how the best to do it. i've tried to put a bit of an order on the questions if you're happy for me to fire away with them i will do and obviously if it prompts anything in your mind hannah just go for it and uh, yeah, yeah chip in and then you can ask your 56 questions afterwards <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so the first question, I think the logical one, is how long does it take to become an air traffic controller? Is that the correct okay. term now?
1: Yes, air traffic controller. Yep, that's right. It will it will vary. It's a bit like 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 our flight crew colleagues who fly the aircraft. We speak to. You'll do a what's called a basic rating course. So, a, a, at an approved training establishment. And I think there are, there are two in the UK now. One is run by the company that I work for, NATS, National Air Traffic Services, and that's down near Southampton in uh, Whiteley. You'll do a basic, cor- basic rating course. So, to learn the, lots of the theory, lots of the air law, the nav- how aircraft navigate, the specific language that we use when we talk to aircraft yeah. um, over the radio. Uh, which I guess we might come on to a bit later. And that's a, uh, if I could say it it specializes in terms of working at an airport in a control tower or working at maybe an airport or a control center, guiding the aircraft in onto final approach, lining them up or controlling the very high level aircraft that you see leaving contrails 30 to 40,000 feet above us. They're different disciplines of the same sort of air traffic control concept. And then once you graduate from the college, you'll go to a, a unit, be it at an airport or a control center, and then you'll have unit specific training at those locations. And so the whole process could take anything up to three three years. So when you first arrive at, the, at your unit, you might spend some time in the simulator um, specific to that airport or control center. And then you'll sort of graduate onto sitting with an instructor at a live control position, talking to actual aircraft, and then over time, obviously the the input the instructor has at the at the first point of the training plan is is very high, and you as the trainee have a very low input. And gradually over time, sure. you'll have more input. The instructor will will figuratively stand back a bit. Of yes. course, they're always right next to you, monitoring what's going on, but they will hopefully allow you to to control more and, and use your own initiative as in, to what you're controlling while under very strict supervision the idea being that at the end of the training plan at the end of those three years or however long your unit takes you are doing everything on your own and then the civil aviation authority come in to witness a, a final examination and ask you a lot of questions uh, mm. to, to check that you understand not just that you can do the job but you understand the theory behind it yes um and then you're signed off and that's what we call validate you you have validated your license and you you move from having a student license to a uh, to a full air traffic control license and you can then walk upstairs to the ops room and plug in on your own without anybody sat next to you monitoring you uh,
0: okay thank you that's brilliant so there, there are definitely some similarities in terms mm. of the duration and stuff. So do you have to have a pilot's license before you do what you do?
1: Oh, no, not at all. No, there's um, the selection process, which, which we might come on to later, is geared to selecting candidates with certain skills and abilities. Or well, certainly- so Do, do the, it now, tell the, us about it now, okay. Adam. So, so, so the, um, as, as maybe we can understand, maybe from popular media, the idea of air traffic control is that it's very stressful. It's not really because we try and recruit people who don't find it stressful. I mean, that's, that's the headline. The slightly longer answer is that the selection process is, is designed to test the candidates to or the applicants to make sure they can make decisions and problem solve when they're mm-hmm. under pressure when they feel under pressure themselves. Yes. So it's quite a it's quite a stressful selection process. I will definitely say that. The idea is at the end of it you have a pool of people who have that ability to make critical decisions under pressure um, and to make the right ones as well. Then you know the 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 training is very intense and highly pressurized, but it's all geared to equipping you with the skills to allow you to control 20 30 aircraft at a time on the airport or in in the air and not feel under stress so wow so yeah it's a it's a very involved selection procedure mm. moving on to the training program
0: i, I was very fortunate to go to uh, is it swanik yes yeah, yes, and uh, spend some time there we'll just and i i would say that there's there doesn't feel there's any stress no,
1: and, no. do you one, still one, use
0: the wooden blocks as the backup for the aircraft
1: so yeah, what you're referring to there is is what we would call a strip, traditionally, and and it still goes on at, at some locations around the country and around the world. Is each aircraft is represented by a literally a paper strip, that's that's maybe six inches long and an inch and an inch wide, and they're put into certain coloured holders. They might be wooden or they're plastic, and and that that system was developed back in the 1940s really and basically anything that you would tell the aircraft you would write down on its strip Mm. and anything the aircraft told you you would write down on the strip and you would move the strip around in a in a board in front of you whether it's geographically or or some method of arranging the data in front of you so that that was an aid memoir as to where the aircraft were or what you were told the aircraft to do now most of the locations around the country now certainly the, the control centers and the major airports have gone to an electronic version of that so it's it's touch screens, and the aircraft are still literally represented by a a graphical representation of a strip mm. um but obviously with it all electronic you can do a lot more in the background in terms of data yes. and transferring control of aircraft without having to talk to the other controller that you're passing the aircraft on to yeah so so actually to, to answer the, your original question no you don't need a pilot's license to to be an air traffic controller the selection and the training process assumes zero knowledge Very and good. I, I would consider myself a bit of an geek, and you're among uh, friends so, is all right <laughs> so 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 I love airplanes and aviation and I grew up watching you know looking through the airport fence at Plymouth airport which is sadly closed now but but and going to air shows and I still go to air shows now but some of my colleagues on my training course had zero knowledge of aviation just literally what they picked up in the previous 6 months during the selection process the training provides you with the skills to do it there's no requirement to have a any sort of qualification in aviation or, or background in aviation.
0: Yeah. So it's pretty, so yeah. So it sounds like you have certain attributes and, and, and a desire to, to want thing. to do it. Yes. Yeah. Understood. yes. So can I ask you some really random questions then? Cause mm-hmm. I've been thrown a bunch of them and they don't, I've tried to put an order on it, but I'm not sure it's going to work. So here we go. Have you ever nearly lost the plot on a stressful shift?
1: Well, going back nice to my and easy, answer, going with before, a nice easy
0: one there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> going back to my answer before, no, that you know the training equips you so well, and we're very, very much like the uh, the airlines and the flight crew side of thing. What we call TRM, Team Resource Management, what the flight crew would maybe call CRM, Crew or Cockpit Resource Management. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly key to having a team of people working to the same outcome and we're all monitoring each other when we're controlling so so on a in a normal time so pre covid in heathrow tower there might be six or seven controllers working within yes. quite a short you know floor space a small floor space so we can all pick up a bit of what each other is going what uh, each other is talking about and controlling and whether the person over in that position is getting a bit busier, so you might arrange your traffic or set up something that helps them to reduce their workload. So, so we're all looking out for each other, you know, and and monitoring each other's workload. And, you know, the the training and the skills mean that that's not really a, a, a problem.
0: Okay, great. So some of these questions are going to come weird because you're probably yeah, sort no, of answering no so How do you unwind?
1: I, d- I don't really feel that I need to right. I'd, you know I as I said before I I don't find it stressful at all in fact in some ways I find my my the office side of my job more stressful in some ways than than mm. going upstairs to control and I sort of mentally think of going up to the control tower to talk to airplanes as break <laughs> um, I know that might sound a bit odd, bit odd but you know in my spare time on days off at the weekend I'll run go for cycle rides I'll paddleboard you know getting exercise mm. in the out, outdoors is well I think it's important for all of us you know mental health wise and, and yeah. certainly the last 18 months has, has probably taught us that get outside mm. more so that, that I
0: guess that's what I
1: would do in my spare time
0: brilliant I mean there is a question about the pandemic I'll come back to that one so I think this one has come I think, I think they're all similar, so I'll just ask them in a, in a sort of a salvo of things. How many breaks do you get? Who covers if you need to go to the bathroom? And how many hours or days in a row are you allowed to work? That, those
1: are all very good questions. We are regulated by law in terms of how many hours we can work in a set period, how many hours we can be sat in position working before we get a break. So, for example, across the UK, there are exceptions in special circumstances but generally it's two hours you can be sat down before you are required to have a 30 minute break right At some of the busier places that's an hour and a half before you get a half an hour break so there are various limitations again very much like flight crew they have flight time limitations to make sure they're not tired or fatigued when they work very similar to to air traffic controllers and so we, we will work for a period between one to two hours and then we will have a half an hour break. So the staffing that is required, obviously it depends on how many controllers are needed to be sat in one ops room at any one time. So for example, Heathrow tower, the, the unit I'm familiar with, let's say we have seven positions open, two runway controllers, three ground controllers, a supervisor and a, and a clearance delivery controller. And are is seven seven open seats there for people to sit in so we would probably have 11 or 12 controllers on the shift to provide that rolling right. break scheme and one of the supervisors most important task is to make sure everybody has a break at the appropriate time so so i might walk upstairs at say seven o'clock in the morning when the shift starts and the supervisor will say adam you're going to do the southern runway control position okay i'll plug in there and i'll work for say an hour and a half the person that i let out at seven o'clock will go downstairs have breakfast have a cup of tea have a you know sit down watch the tv for a bit come back up at half past seven and the supervisor will say right so and so you're going to do the northern runway now and then so it just rotates through on the whole shift so there's always a purely from a resilience point of view there's Mm -hmm. always more controllers in the building than generally we would ever actually need to use at any one time to provide that resilience for you know report writing for training for debriefing trainees for providing those those breaks so it's it's quite regulated in terms of that
0: i would imagine it to have been like that so that's a great answer for me okay so there's this is one of those lovely leading questions what happens if you can't get in touch with an airplane
1: so I guess to answer this, there are there are two areas of it. First area is that radio fail procedures are written down, both in terms of what the flight crew should do and what in terms of air traffic controllers should do. So there's there's something called the Manual of Air Traffic Services, which is a 400 and something page document that the CAA produce. And then also a similar document is produced for each air traffic control location for each control tower or control center and there's a there's also a document called the integrated aeronautical information package such a snappy title yes but that has i don't know how (laughs) many pages that has that probably has about 2500 pages features all the airports in the country all the airways all the controlled airspace boundaries all the procedures for anybody flying into the uk into or out of or within the uk airspace and that has set down what air crews should flight crews should do if they have a radio fail and that sort of thing is coordinated globally through um, what's called icao the International Civil Aviation Organization, which is a branch of the United Nations. So that standardizes what aviation does across the whole world. And uh, so the flight crew know what to do if they have a radio fail and the controllers know what to do when they have a radio fail. Obviously, in the last probably 20 years, there's been a slight, slightly increased focus in terms of security if an aircraft is no longer talking to air traffic control, and obviously there are procedures to deal with that, where we coordinate with the military, you understand I probably can't go into no, any more of detail not. than that, but no. there, are, there are certain procedures that are followed, but what I would say is that such a radio failure is extremely rare and and it's something that's practiced both the flight crew would practice it in their simulator required uh, simulator visits every six months to a year and it's something that's controllers we regularly practice in our simulator training as well
0: brilliant yeah i mean commercial aviation is all about what if isn't it so that's a great yes, example yes. uh okay
2: adam and ask if it has ever if it's ever happened to you
1: that's a good question i think it's happened with an aircraft in the air, it's happened once to me. We had an aircraft come in. I mean, this was probably 17, 18 years ago. It got to about 20 miles away from the airport, and and then no longer could talk to us, or we could no longer talk to it. And as I said just now, it followed the procedure, and we, you know, we made sure the runway was clear when it was on approach, and it landed. And we already had a, we'd alerted the airport operations department, and they got a follow me vehicle out and just sat at the edge of the runway it landed fine and it vacated and um, it followed the follow me to to the stand so we were talking to the driver of the follow me car and he was effectively leading the aircraft on the ground
0: and yeah it was fine great no drama that was a that was question number one from hannah only (laughs) 98 to go okay Uh, what happens when someone has to do an emergency landing what's the protocol class that's a huge question i'm sure
1: that's that's a very big question because well the short answer is and i i know i'm probably going to sound flippant here is it depends it could be a what i would call a very benign emergency in terms of there's nothing affecting the aircraft but it's a very sick passenger Hmm. in which case we would give it you know immediate priority for landing and alert the ambulance service, and maybe alert the airline if it's a if it's a late notice call cool, that that they need to have some sort of welfare, you know, provided to to the passenger when when they uh, get off the aircraft. But in terms of aviation safety, there's not much impact for that. We just give it a bit of priority over any other aircraft that are that are coming in at the same time. If an aircraft has has a has a problem thankfully you know modern airliners are so reliable and their systems are so duplicated across the aircraft so so for example a hydraulic failure which 30 40 years ago might have meant a big emergency response and no flaps to slow the aircraft down on approach maybe no brakes on the wheels and they might have had to evacuate on the runway because of the risk of fire nowadays on modern commercial airliners they have four fully redundant and independent hydraulic systems they can have one of them fail they've still got three it's the pilot doesn't really even notice they tell us oh we've had a hydraulic failure and because we are ultra cautious about these things our procedures still say our one hydraulic failure it is still an emergency so we have to alert the fire service the airfield ops department the ambulance service and we get everything lined up ready and even to the extent of having maybe fire engines out by the runway but the aircraft lands vacates and parks and the pilots don't even notice anything different it's just one light has gone red in the cockpit so it's it it's a vast sort of spectrum of severity and there's again it's all written down in the airport emergency orders book which is a requirement a legal requirement for every airport to have in terms of it's just a big like you said earlier a big list of what ifs if this happens then this 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 should happen there are different categories of emergency so for example if if a if a tug catches on fire on the taxiway there are two guys in the tug and they quickly get out and you know and use a fire extinguisher or something we might declare something called an aircraft ground incident where the fire service send a few fire engines out but you know that's it or if it's if it's a you know a, a larger aircraft coming in then then we'll have a larger response and if it's, if they're still in the air so it's, it's a wide spectrum of responses as controllers we sort of take on the information of what's wrong what's you know what's the failure what's the situation okay now we can choose from this menu of responses yes okay we'll choose this and we'll we'll alert the appropriate yeah. r- agencies
0: that's really really to know because i know i've helped many people over the years have said my fear was actually triggered because we came into land and then we saw the fire engine and all the rest of it and i always say to them that's kind of the belt and braces principle yes. Yes. You know, they'll do that because they they need the practice as well They they'll scramble everything oh yes yeah, just...
1: definitely and and if we haven't had a a real emergent because they are now relatively rare if we haven't had quote a real emergency for a while we'll we'll put on a fake one just for the fire service to practice their response
0: which is good for creating more nervous slides so thank you for that <laughs> yes but hopefully when they listen to this they'll realize why it's going on that's brilliant okay so So this I love this question because it's obviously come from some of the media stuff. Sometimes the media reports have an element of truth and other times it's Mm -hmm. tosh. Uh, So this one, is it true? Love this traffic controllers are out of practice since traffic was so much lower during the pandemic. Uh, What are the trainings and such being done to mitigate that and avoid things like the near collision that happened last year due to air traffic control error in France?
1: So, yes, obviously, we've all noticed a dramatic decrease in, in air traffic over the past 18 months. Although, obviously, you know, it's, it's picking up now, which is, which is good. But in terms of, so we've always, as you said earlier, we're always thinking of the what if. We're always thinking of being ultra cautious and having safety as our, you know, our top priority. So we're always thinking about what's going to happen next. And what is the main risk or the main risks to the operation? One of those is air traffic controllers potentially not controlling busy traffic levels as much as they did before COVID. So what we've done, we've, you know, and this this is true all across the country. And, and you know, I would sort of hope and assume it's it's true across most of the world is that controllers will be, and certainly I have had more refresher training, more regular refresher training, more, Uh, refresher training more often and that could be in the form of a classroom discussion or it could be in the form of more regular checks with my examiner who is responsible for for my competency as we call it so so when you validate you first qualify as a controller yep that's great You, you you can control on your own but there is also a more senior colleague called an examiner who will be writing reports on your controlling standard throughout your career. Mm. And, and so we've been sitting examiners with their, their charges, as we call it, the the controllers they're responsible for more often and writing more regular reports. And we've been also had our ATC simulator running with busy traffic levels, which we're not seeing in real life yet. Uh, Obviously we hope we will soon. So we know it's, it's a safety issue there are lots of mechanisms in place to to stop it becoming a a an actual safety issue so so the controllers are being you know more tested more regularly trained more regularly while we have this sort of downtime as it were or slump in in traffic levels because it you know it it, skills do fade especially at at the more complex and busy units that that can see those really busy hours so so yes it's, you know, it's something we're all cognizant of and we're all working towards, you know, making sure it's not a problem.
0: That's great. So uh, my next question is almost the opposite to that. So that's that's a great answer. How has air traffic control kept pace with increased passenger and plane throughput? So um, the question I'd add to that is that when it's busy. What's this? How do you enforce the separation, the safety margins, you know, you know, there's so much this is a question i've had thousands of times you know but they someone watches like heathrow for example yeah. you see them shooting off every three minutes or whatever it is mm. how's that safe so a little bit around that and then perhaps you could elaborate on the the separation that they have once they're up there and the routes and stuff
1: yeah sure so so again it's it's very regulated so the civil aviation authority have their own air traffic control inspectors effectively and any change to a to a a technique or practice or procedure has to be agreed in advance with the CAA. And one thing that we, you know, we're we have to cope with is the the design and structure of the whole UK airspace, which is a is a legacy that we're that we are we've spent a lot of effort trying to eke out the most amount of capacity from it while still maintaining and well, and improving the level of safety. So back in the fifties and sixties aircraft, you know, when they were in cloud at high level, they would navigate from radio navigation beacon to radio navigation beacon to radio navigation beacon. So all of the airways and routes that aircraft would fly would all meet over radio navigation beacons. Mm. Now, fast forward 50, 60, 70 years to today, the airways and the routes that most aircraft fly still all point towards radio navigation beacons. Whereas the the aircraft that are flying on those routes don't use radio navigation beacons anymore. They use satellite based and inertial navigation systems. Now they're always there as a backup. And yes, the aircraft can receive the signals from those beacons, but in reality, they're not really required anymore. The issue that this sort of gives to air traffic controllers You know, as a whole, is that aircraft needs to be diverted from their planned route that goes from ABC because all the aircraft are going to A, all the aircraft are going to B, all the aircraft are going to C at various levels. So they're all, it's all safely separated by a thousand feet vertically. But that means if an aircraft is descending, and they're sort of going to be in conflict in the future with an aircraft that's climbing on on a crossing route, the controller needs to take action to stop that Mm. or to to enable those aircraft to keep climbing and or descending. So the the controller will turn one aircraft left by 10 degrees, the other aircraft right by 10 degrees, or stop one of the aircraft off. So it it crosses 1000 feet below and Maybe some of your listeners might have noticed this, you know, when they're flying and they're looking out the window of a passenger aircraft, they might see another aircraft coming what seems quite close overhead or just beneath the aircraft. So those will always be a thousand feet apart. And that's the required minimum vertical separation. So that's completely safe. And there are buffers built into that thousand feet as well in terms of altimeter, you know, variation. The controller is having to make these constant alterations and tweaks of aircraft courses turn left 10 degrees turn right 10 degrees stop climb climb now descend now stop descent so that creates a high level of workload for those controllers now if we could redesign the whole of the UK airspace to take advantage of satellite navigation technology we could have multiple side-by-side routes rather than just having one that goes ABC. We could have one that goes ABC, one that goes ABC, but is a mile North of the what, the other mm. one. And then two miles North, three miles North, four miles North. Mm. So we could spread out the traffic over a wider area and they would all be separated so they could keep climbing. And yes. it's not just a capacity issue in terms of the number of aircraft. It's an environmental issue as well because aircraft are far more efficient in terms of noise and emissions if they once they take off if they just keep climbing all the way to their cruise cruise altitude or once they are at the cruise altitude and starting to come into land what they reach what we call the top of descent so where they've initially start descending if they then kept descending all the way down effectively just to the runway rather than having to keep stopping off every few thousand feet because there's an aircraft crossing underneath. Yes. So it's far more efficient, far less emissions are are created, far less fuel is burnt, far less CO2 is created. Mm-hmm. So it's all those sort of considerations that that are going into to a project that's going on at the moment to redesign all of the airspace over over the UK effectively to take advantage of this new technology that
0: aircraft have. Yeah. So it sounds so the main message there that a lot of people find reassuring is this thousand feet separation, which
1: is a heck of a lot, isn't it? So that so there are, yeah, the 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 separation standards a thousand feet above or below an aircraft, and depending on the location of the aircraft, it's either three miles or five miles laterally. So if if two aircraft are within a thousand feet of each other vertically, they need to be three or five miles apart laterally as well.
0: Which which is fantastic to hear thank you that's that's brilliant
2: are there any countries adam that have already designed their airspace like that that have sort of like set the standard or
1: that's a good question there are there are some countries who are who are doing it at the at the moment there's there's something called next gen in the in the united states they're sort of the faa which is the 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 u.s equivalent both of of the air traffic control provider and the CAA, they're sort of one entity in, in the US. They're, they're doing something called NextGen, which is very similar. And, and it's being worked on across the world in, in at various points. The, one of the problems is it takes so long in terms of time to coordinate all of the different parties that have a say in what the airspace should look like. Um, obviously all the airports have a say all the airspace users, airlines, the military have a say, and obviously residents who will be living underneath the aircraft have a say. It takes a lot of will and effort and time to make sure everybody's felt that they've had the adequate say and, and, and come up with a design. So yes, it is going on. The other, the other thing is that the technology has, in the last 20 years, has leaped ahead very, very quickly with the advent of GPS. And other satellite navigation systems it's it's something where the the technology is there but the the rest of the aviation world because again it's so safety conscious it's so cautious it needs a lot of testing a lot of simulation a lot of modeling a lot of research before it goes into live operation so it's always a slow process
0: Mm, that's great great one
1: which which can be frustrating for the end user but is a good thing because it's safe that's how yes. we make sure it's safe by constantly yes. testing it against your assumptions and saying is this really the right thing to do is this really safe yes it is okay well now we'll introduce
0: it yeah, yeah. that's that's reasonable isn't it does that answer that one for you hannah yes thank you Cle <laughs> <laughs> keep them coming that was a good one okay so what about over the sea So are are you ever, are there sort of like black spots where there's no contact or anything like that, that people, that's the question we often get. Well, how does it overlap? That's
1: actually, that's actually a very good sort of lead on from the last question, because in answer to Hannah, probably the the most advanced airspace design out there is over the North Atlantic Ocean, because there are far fewer or or the, the airspace users are far fewer in number. It's mainly just the the main airlines that fly from North America to Europe. Obviously, there are no countries underneath the airspace that that might then have their own say in terms of airspace design. And it's and it's literally maybe three or four countries who divide up the North Atlantic Ocean in terms of control or responsibility. So the UK has has responsibility effectively halfway out across to the to mid Mid Atlantic Ocean and almost up to sort of just a bit south of iceland and uh, canada and then the us and portugal so so that obviously there is a a far different infrastructure in terms of airspace as well over the ocean there are no radar stations there are no radio navigation beacons Hmm. so aircraft have always been navigating themselves across the ocean what has happened in the last few years is that uh, a technology that's that's i'm going to use some jargon now and some it. abbreviations <laughs> so something called adsb which stands for automatic dependent surveillance broadcast we aviation loves it's it's um, incongruous abbreviations of course it yeah. doesn't really mean anything those <laughs> words but basically it's the aircraft are receiving signals from gps satellites so the aircraft know where they are and then they're transmitting that location to ground stations or satellites who then relay it back to ground stations. So in a, in a short answer, it's, it's the technology that you might see on flight radar or any of the plane tracking apps that you can get now on your phone. Mm. That's the technology that's, that's being used in the back of those as well. But, but this enables us to design oceanic airspace in a far more efficient way and far more reactive way than we would do over land with fixed routes so the routes that aircraft fly over the North Atlantic change every day due to just based on purely the wind. So generally Northern Hemisphere, North Atlantic, it's an eastbound because of the Gulf Stream and the Jet Stream, you have a tailwind coming eastbound from America and a headwind going westbound to America from Europe. Yes. So the the routes are all designed about what's the most efficient for the aircraft. And even in the last few months, actually we've we've started to to work without any routes whatsoever there are no routes published across the North Atlantic now so it's up to the aircraft itself to effectively choose its most efficient route across the Atlantic and the controllers using it looks to them like a radar screen but it's this ADSB technology where the aircraft are telling the, the ground stations where they are rather than the radar station sending out you know radio radiation bouncing off an aircraft and coming back being received Mm. like normal radar does so so yeah that's something that's happened literally in the last few months where where the aircraft are being allowed to choose their most efficient flight route and profile and climb profile and then if ATC can accommodate that given all the other aircraft are doing the same thing then that's yeah that's something I was going to ask that what's the risk
0: of that because it sounds like a quite a, a modern thing
1: yeah, it's a it's a very modern thing. I think. Yeah, we and the and the Canadians are, are sort of led led the world on this. Uh, the UK and Canada, NATS and NAV Canada, along with a company called Aerion, which is the the satellite based ADSB sort of company that that we're working with. And it, you know, it's it, yeah, it's the first in the world where this has been done. And but as I said, all those same separation standards, all those same requirements for the minimum distance between aircraft still apply. And it still looks like a radar screen to the controller. So almost from a controller's point of view, the piece of airspace, they their it could be over London. Yes. But it, or it could be the middle of the North Atlantic. It, it almost looks the same to them. Brilliant. It just doesn't have the outline of the UK coastline on, on their radar screen.
0: No, that's great. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that people need to. These are the sort of questions I get. I've got a couple of humdingers for you as well, but mm-hmm. I'll come back to those. <laughs> okay, so this is, I think this is a, a nice one and builds on what you're just talking about. So with the increased automation of AI, do you think we'll ever see fully computerized ATC as we have seen with lighthouses? There you go, that's, a random one. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, well, certainly, you know, tool, Tools, what we call tool support to the controller is increasing. Going back to, to my answer about the airspace in terms of how we can increase the level of safety and keep up with air traffic growth as well. We've introduced various tools to help the controller. We haven't you know, gone as far as AI operationally yet. There are lots mm. of research projects going on. We've got one in, in Heathrow where we're using cameras, where an AI is, is effectively learning what an aircraft looks like when it's vacated the runway. So, you know, in the future, we might be able, in, in low visibility procedures, when it's really foggy and the controllers can't see out the window and we rely on our ground radar systems, there might be something that, that an AI could do in terms of just reassuring the controller that the aircraft has fully vacated the runway instead of having a, a radar blob that, that you probably have to allow an extra few seconds for to vacate the runway. You could have an instant indication. So we're, we're looking at, you know, we yeah, we are looking at AI and there's been a recent sort of launch of a project with the Turing Institute in terms of how else AI could help air traffic control in the future. But that's very much research. As I said, aviation, ATC, is a very safety conscious profession and industry. Things are researched and developed for a long period before they're introduced things that have been introduced are it's not ai by any stretch of the imagination but it's a controller support tools and things that allow the controllers to so that they're not taken up by mundane tasks or things that humans aren't very good at doing such as monitoring things that can get very monotonous and then of course into if, if they're monitoring a safety-critical thing and then that happens, you need to be able to react instantly. Yes. So, so things like monitoring systems and alarms. And so, for example, at Heathrow, we have a system that monitors the, the final approach. So the last 10 miles from over London into Heathrow or maybe from over Windsor coming into Heathrow from the other direction. If an aircraft gets a bit too low on approach or a bit too high on approach or a bit too left and a bit too right, an alarm will go off in the tower so and far and that the the computer alarm will spot that far quicker than a human would because a human is also talking to airplanes looking out the window looking at other areas on their radar screen so they've got a lot of other tasks to do whereas this computer tool is purely just monitoring that and will tell the controller if there's a problem so it's 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 automated systems like that that mm. take on the tasks that suit an automated system and not a human. So certainly we we use that. And, and there is also something that was introduced about seven or eight years ago now into Heathrow called time-based separation. So on approach into Heathrow, if you imagine when things were very, very busy, we'd have an aircraft landing every minute, every minute, and 10 seconds on average. And they were at the minimum distance apart that we could we could get them at those three miles apart. The problem with that is that if then we had a 20 to 30 mile an hour headwind the aircraft would still come down the approach three miles apart but because they're now flying into a 30 mile an hour headwind they're flying slower over the ground rather than doing 150 miles an hour they might be doing 120 miles an hour because of that headwind so that's slow that reduces the number of aircraft that can land per hour. I'd, I'd liken it to if you if you drive on the UK motorway network, you might come across stretches of motorways that have the chevrons on the on the ground, on the lanes, and and the signs are saying keep two chevrons apart. You know that's very much the same. You know if aircraft are coming down two chevrons apart, but if you imagine if you're driving down the motorway at 70 miles an hour, two chevrons apart, then the motorway has a certain throughput. If you all reduced speed but still kept two chevrons apart, the throughput of the motorway would reduce. Yes. Because you're, you, you know, a lower, a reduced number of aircraft are passing the same, or cars are passing the same point, the same Chevron mm. per, you know, 10 minutes or an hour. So we actually now separate the aircraft on fine approach in terms of time. So if there's a headwind, we actually put the aircraft slightly closer together in terms of distance. But because they're traveling slower, it's the same gap in terms yes. of time. Yeah. and conversely if it's calm or there's a slight tailwind we actually increase the distance to keep that time that safety barrier you know constant so so that's something that came in eight and nine, uh, seven or eight years ago now at Heathrow and and again that was a world first and there are various other airports now have, have purchased this system Toronto and, and Amsterdam I think are two and and again that it didn't it's something that didn't increase our capacity it didn't allow more aircraft to fly in but what it did do is it reduced delays due to headwinds so on a on a normal day with maybe a five mile an hour wind at Heathrow we would land let's say 42 aircraft in an hour if the headwind then got up to 30 miles an hour the next day we would only land 37 36 and over a eight nine, 10 hours that's a lot of aircraft yeah sure landing slots that you've lost whereas with time based separation because we we flex the separation in terms of distance but not in terms of time the reduction would be from 42 to 40 maybe or 42 to 41 so we've we've reduced oh, the number wow. of delays by half actually before covid hit we've reduced the number of delays into heathrow due to wind by 50% so that's a, that was a big that's some pretty
0: pretty cool stuff isn't it yeah
1: yeah it is and and again you know i was working on that project for probably seven or eight years before it was introduced so it goes through so much research and development so much safety assurance you know it's not just something somebody has a great idea one day and then oh let's try this yeah we'll go up to the tower and have a go it takes a long time to introduce and you know a new piece of of equipment
0: yeah, I think that's a very reassured message, but it's true for all commercial aviation. Of course. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Uh, that's, these, are gr- these are great answers, by the way. And you, Hopefully you're you're maintaining your calmness that we know you for now. Yes, I'm okay.
1: trying. I'm trying.
0: So this has come from a specific, this is a, a particular person who's nervous. Why do you have to sit on a runway for hours sometime? Uh, I'm flying again for the second time in 30 years in October. So that's a big deal. And that's, this really makes me nervous. Why can't a plane turn back to the gate and the passengers wait there?
1: That's a really good question. And I sometimes get frustrated. And you know, when I'm flying somewhere, we'll taxi out and then we'll wait by the runway for, for what seems like hours. There are various different reasons why, that, why this might happen. And I'll come on to those in a bit. I'll probably just touch on why you don't turn around and go back. At a busy airport, certainly at Heathrow, the stand, the gate that you departed from, that you pushed back from, has already been taken by another aircraft that's just landed and is now disembarking its passengers. So there might not be anywhere for you to go back to. And the other point is some of the reasons why the departure rate slows down and therefore why there might be a big queue of aircraft at the departure runway are things like bad weather or thunderstorms, you know, somewhere along the route, not necessarily even within visible distance of the, of the runway, but it might be somewhere down, down route somewhere, or there might be a, what we call, and and some of your listeners might've heard of this uh, when they've heard the captain speaking on the PA on the flight, something called an ATC slot time that governs when an aircraft can take off. Now, that's generally due to to a busy part or what we would call a sector of airspace has reached its capacity. And therefore, some airline some flights are being delayed so that they don't overload the controller. Again, it's all about safety. We don't want aircraft to get airborne. You know, you can't tell an aircraft to stop once it's airborne. You can tell an aircraft to stop when it's still on the ground, which is what we do. If there's a danger of, of, a, of a control position, and that's not necessarily even in the UK, the whole of Europe is sort of working together in this regard. It monitors, there's a central uh, flow unit in Brussels, which is responsible for the whole of Europe, European airspace. And it's, it's got a massive computer there, analysing every single flight plan of every single flight in Europe, looking at when they're planning to take off, their route their speed their the height that they'll be flying at and when it determines that too many aircraft are going to be going through a certain piece of airspace based on on a on a table of what number of flights that piece of airspace can cope with it will say okay well let's go back to that Heathrow arrival example actually that that I said 42 aircraft could land in one hour at Heathrow if the if the Brussels computer sees oh hang on in the next hour or you know, in, in four hours time, there are 45 aircraft planned to arrive at Heathrow in that hour. That's three more than Heathrow can cope with. So what I'm going to do is delay the last three aircraft of in that hour by, say, five minutes. So they move into the next hour. Yes. And those three aircraft will be given an ATC slot time. Now, that doesn't guarantee them a landing you know, position in the queue or anything like that. But it just means that the Heathrow controllers won't be overloaded when there's a steady flow of traffic the idea is if you if you look at a graph across the day you might see various peaks and troughs of Mm. busy quiet busy quiet we're chopping off the top of that peak and sort of pushing it down into the trough to sort of flatten out the curve a bit flatten out the sine wave so so what happens when there's a slot time and that might be allocated when an aircraft is taxiing out so then it might have to pull over to the side and wait for 10-15 minutes or so is that that can that situation is quite fluid and it can change so for example if an aircraft was flying to heathrow from let's say munich in southern germany and another aircraft was flying to heathrow from brussels so the flight from brussels is a lot shorter so if the flight in munich waiting to depart munich with a slot time has let's say all the passengers get on board and then maybe there's they they've realized that one of the toilets is is broken or something and they need to get an engineer out to fix it before they take off so he's missed his slot time now he's going to have to wait for he's going to have to reapply for a new slot time to the Brussels computer and however the flight in Brussels who hasn't even started boarding the passengers yet because he's a lot closer to Heathrow can now take that Munich's flight place in the arrival stream into Heathrow so they might say, oh, yeah, Brussels flight, okay, you can go now. But if he's not ready to go, Mm. if that flight hasn't got all the passengers on board on schedule, they won't be in a position to take advantage of that. So that's another reason, getting back to the original question, why generally flights don't turn around and go back to the terminal. Because if they're starting to go back, if they get to the terminal, then there is a vacant gate and the passengers start getting off because it's a bit more comfortable in the terminal than than in in an airline seat. And then the Brussels computer says, oh, no, you can go now. They can't take advantage of that. And invariably, you know, if if a if a passenger, a group of passengers gets off a flight, you know, they they might, some people, well, some people want to go to the, go to the laboratory. Some people want to go and buy a bottle of water in Smith's. Some people want to go buy. A, and then it's very difficult for the airline staff to corral all those people back in to the in in very quick time so so that's generally why aircraft won't turn around um, having waited for a long period on at or near the runway and again going back to the original thing if there is poor weather around or the the sort of the a lot of complex sort of decisions being made by air traffic controllers of aircraft already in the air it's just safer for those who've not yet taken off to stay on the ground
0: that's a great answer you're doing very well, <laughs> <laughs> so what about so this? Is my kind of curveball question. We, we get asked this a lot for, in different guises, but what airspaces in the world would you feel less comfortable as a passenger?
1: You know, and I'm being really honest here, there isn't anywhere that I wouldn't feel comfortable flying. Hmm. A lot of the procedures that we use, the language that we use, the, the safety requirements, are the, they're all the same all across the world, governed by the ICAO organization I referred to earlier. And there are yes, there are areas around the world that don't have radar coverage. So anywhere, any aircraft flying above the UK will be on a radar screen somewhere in the middle of Australia, obviously over the oceans, in the middle of Africa there's not radar, but with the new technology I was describing earlier on, it's very similar to radar in terms of what the controller has. And in a lot of areas where air traffic is less common, you know, over stretches of Siberia, the North pole, the South, you know, Southern ocean, the South pole, those areas have special procedures for the pilots to follow. And they will be talking to each other on the radio. So, You know, if a flight was, I don't know, heading from Cape Town to New Zealand and going sort of under the globe of the Earth, under the South Pole, and another one was going from Chile to India or something and going on a crossing track somewhere, you know, over the the Southern Ocean, the pilots in those two aircraft would be talking to each other. They'd be broadcasting, saying, "Oh, this is flight one two three. We're at this position, this latitude, longitude, at yeah. this height, and we're flying at this speed. And we're going to be at this next waypoint in thirty-five minutes' time. And then, you know, they're constantly talking to each other on a on on a. Uh, it's colloquially called a chat frequency. It's 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 not for chatting, but it's <laughs> for for passing position reports to each other, just to make sure everybody else." knows where they are. And and at the end of the day, if you're, you know, 30, 40,000 feet, especially at night, you can see aircraft and it's, and you're not over civilization, i.e. you're out of radar coverage. You can very easily see aircraft, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, hundred miles away because of their lights. So, so there are still lots of, and yes. and all the, 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 last minute safety barriers, something called TCAS, which is where the aircraft talk to each other electronically. if, The systems on board each aircraft think they're going to get a bit too close. They're still working fine. So, yeah, there is nowhere in the world that I would feel uncomfortable
0: going on a flight. I mean, that's in itself, that's gold just there, Adam. That's a a question that comes up every single course I ever run. Mm -hmm where do you where wouldn't you fly where do you not feel safe and does it apply if I fly to America I've never heard of this airline you know all of this it's it's in the same cluster isn't it Mm. can you relate to that Hannah?
2: Yeah definitely. So has this
0: prompted any questions that you might have had in the past or anything that's was there anything that you've heard that's made you think I didn't know that and that's actually really useful?
2: Yeah I think there was a few things actually When you said one of my questions was going to be um, whether you got like tested regularly, like pilots do or flight attendants do. And it sounded like maybe it's sort of situational, like you said, because of the pandemic, you're training and going into the simulators and everything's ramped up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that sort of answered that one there. Um, I did have a question. There's a few things that like popped up. Um, So just just then when you were talking, I I was thinking about um, like small private aircraft. Would you have to communicate with them as well as obviously the big commercial airlines? Yeah,
1: it, it very much depends on as a controller where you are working, which unit you're working at. So so there's when I've been talking about airspace over the course of the last hour and a, hour and a bit, it it's there are two sort of main groups of airspace. There's what we call controlled airspace and uncontrolled airspace. So controlled airspace is generally what airliners carrying members of the public will be flying in 100% of the time. So if you fly from Heathrow to Paris or Heathrow to, you know, anywhere in Europe, anywhere, you know, effectively anywhere in the world on a, on a commercial airliner, you will be within controlled airspace all the time with an air traffic controller looking after your flight and to enter controlled airspace you need a clearance from the controller responsible for that piece of airspace. Now, around Heathrow, we've got controlled airspace all the way down to the ground within sort of a radius of about eight miles of Heathrow. So any small aircraft that might take off from, from a farm strip or, or one of the, the, the light aircraft airfields around London, so Denham, Elstree, White Waltham, Wickham Air Park, et cetera, they need to obtain permission from an air traffic controller to enter to cross over that boundary into controlled airspace now outside controlled airspace there are air traffic controllers working and watching over that that airspace as well but there's a very very clear difference that the controllers cannot instruct the aircraft what to do so inside controlled airspace with with me working at Heathrow if an aircraft took off and for whatever reason i needed or wanted to turn it left 30 degrees i would just say speedbird which is the radio call sign for for british airways i could say speedbird 123 turn left now heading 260 degrees and unless he had a safe the 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 flight crew he or she had a safety reason why they couldn't do that effectively they have to follow my instructions now outside controlled airspace i if I was working that, and I have to say I don't, as a matter of course, in my job, I don't handle aircraft outside controlled airspace. Some of my colleagues do at other, other airports. They request if an aircraft, can you do this for this reason? Outside controlled airspace, the light aircraft are flying, the smaller aircraft. There are still very set rules on what aircraft can do. But a lot of it is on the sort of principle of see and avoid. So they are generally flying a lot slower. And in good weather, generally, they need to be a certain distance from cloud, have a certain visibility requirement in terms of what weather they can fly in to allow them to see other aircraft around them and avoid. Now, technically, aircraft could be flying in that environment without a radio. So they don't have to talk to air traffic control. If they don't want to. So, you know, some of the, the gliders and ultralight, microlight aircraft, some vintage aircraft, Tiger Moths, you know, old biplanes from before the Second World War, they don't have the electrical systems to cope with a radio. But there are very, very clear rules, again, sort of rules of the air, as they are literally called, about who has right of way. Actually, you know, interestingly, mostly derived from rules of the sea. I, a powered aircraft has to give way to a glider just as on the sea a powered boat has to give way to a, to a yacht with a sail up uh so so it's it's again it's very standardized very regimented but yes there are areas outside controlled airspace where aircraft as long as they're following the legal requirements of their flight i.e they can't fly too low they have to be above a certain height within a certain radius of a fixed obstacle etc and they have to be able to uh, what's called a light clear in case there's a problem with their engines so they're not allowed to fly very low over towns and cities where they wouldn't be able to land in a field if they needed to so there are lots of rules and regulations about what light aircraft can do and there is a a a clear difference in what controllers can ask of those aircraft outside controlled airspace as opposed to what controllers can instruct other aircraft to do inside controlled airspace that's really
2: interesting thank you it's it's really good
0: i mean Mm -hmm. you're just like just like a font of knowledge i thought I mean, you've been very very generous with your time there's no probably problem. millions of questions i'd love to ask but
1: well I'm, I'm happy to to come back for another one if if there are more questions
0: thank you i mean perhaps i like to ask people who are professionals like yourself if you had to give a sort of closing comment to reassure anyone who's scared of flying what, what would you say
1: i think it's it's something that air traffic control it's something that most people know is there, but, but, you know, as, as we've seen today, there's, there's so much curiosity about it. And the only time air traffic control is, is, is mentioned in many ways is, is when something has gone wrong or it's in a Hollywood movie and, uh, and that can sort of warp people's perceptions of what it's like going back to something you said near the beginning, Paul, it's, it's, I love before we you know we in the days when we could i love hosting visitors to heathrow tower and taking them upstairs and showing them and it's really really busy and you know we might be handling over 100 aircraft an hour but it's really quiet you know it's it's a quiet atmosphere it's a it's almost library like it's quiet concentration it's um you know because people have been trained so well and they are constantly tested and measured against standards. The equipment we use has been tested and tested and tested before it's in, in, been introduced. There is a lot of effort and time put in. You know, our human factors department, which sort of is looking at how the the human controller will be using these tools and equipment and procedures. You know, they they do fantastic work. and And I think it's just it would be good to get across and hopefully maybe, you know, this has has done that to your listeners about how much, how many people are working behind the scenes and how dedicated they are to get them where they want to go. And in a way it's, you know, it's good that they don't really think about us because that means we're doing our job properly. You know, if, if nobody really thinks about air traffic control, then we've, we've done our job at the end of the day.
0: That's awesome. (laughs) Adam, what can I say? That was just, just brilliant really really helpful how was that for you Hannah was that useful
2: yeah definitely amazing thank you for having me on to listen in well
0: you're you're representing the whole of the fear of flying community so it's (laughs) a big responsibility and Adam that was just brilliant There were some really lovely pieces there which I know are going to help uh, a a lot of fears for people so thank you again
1: no problem really enjoyed it thank you for asking me